0: Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California
1: Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio The Voice of the Desert It's Friday night on the Mojave And if you're visiting or if you live out here but you can't remember where here is Welcome to the Mojave Desert We're broadcasting from Joshua Tree, population 8,000, give or take several million annual drive-by visitors, and uncountable thousands who spend a weekend or a month in one of our charming roadside motels, or national park campgrounds, or Airbnb cabins. We are in the high desert, which is also a description of our upper altitude Mojave with its iconic Joshua tree, a tall and often sinister yucca plant. Mormon pioneers gazing upon these eight or ten or fifty armed monstrosities filled with lizards and spiders saw the obvious resemblance to the famed Old Testament character called Joshua. And so we call these things Joshua Trees. Joshua is Yeshua or Yeshua in Hebrew. And Yeshua is also the name of Jesus, which when written in Greek and mispronounced by Western Europeans for a thousand odd years developed modern pronunciation via the King James Bible. So Joshua trees are technically Jesus trees. Imagine a place called Jesus Tree National Park. Had our grotesque and beloved Yucca Tree been given such a name, chances are the National Park would have kept its originally proposed name, which was Desert Plants National Monument. That was a choice of Minerva Hoyt. The crusading amateur naturalist from Pasadena who convinced the FDR administration to preserve this wild landscape and habitat. Desert Plants National Monument. Hashtag Jesus Tree. there are a lot more Joshua trees in Mojave National Preserve than in Joshua Tree National Park. The Mojave Preserve has the largest, densest, protected Joshua tree forest in the world. To get there, you just head out east from 29 Palms. you take Amboy Road through Wonder Valley and across the railroad tracks and go up to Roy's and then take a left on Kelbaker Road and then take a right at Kelso Depot. But you can't hear this or any other radio broadcast on the FM band in Kelso. That's because Kelso is surrounded by mighty desert mountains that are impenetrable to FM and television broadcast signals. There's another valley like that not too far north of there, spot on the map called Mars. It's right up against Death Valley. It is NASA's Goldstone facility, part of the deep space network of three such antenna complexes around the world. When astronauts first ventured into orbit into the moon, Goldstone and its sister stations kept mission control in touch with the space pioneers. The American desert is the birthplace of the atomic age. From the canyon country of Utah came the uranium, and from the salt flats at Wendover came the Enola Gay. The deserts of California and Nevada tested the planes and the pilots. But there is no Manhattan Project without New Mexico. First at the Rustic Boarding School, where the great scientists came together at Los Alamos, and then at the Trinity Site, the site of the very first detonation of a nuclear weapon. New Mexico became a U.S. state in 1912. A 64-year wait as a territory caused in large part by Washington's discomfort with the land's volatile mix of Indian wars, old Mexican society, and a spiritualism entirely foreign to U.S. Protestants. As the Second World War infected the Old World and most of Europe's great physicists collected in the United States... Many of them began to suffer nightmare visions of a new weapon that would make Germany unstoppable. Washington would have to build the atomic bomb first. Much of the authority for this Manhattan Project fell to J. Robert Oppenheimer a suspected communist and wealthy New York-born scientist who had ventured to New Mexico like so many other elites for the fashionable dry air cure at a guest ranch in 1922. He was so taken with his frontier adventure and the brilliant landscape, the cowboy life and the arid climate, that he later leased and eventually bought that little ranch near Cowles, New Mexico for himself. When the need arose for a remote location for America's World War II effort to build the A-bomb, Oppenheimer suggested the part of New Mexico that he loved best, the mountains north of Santa Fe. After all, his twin obsessions in life were physics and desert country, The Manhattan Project set up shop in the former Los Alamos Ranch School. That rustic, all-boys school had many students of note, including Gore Vidal and William S. Burroughs.
0: let's say I, I can't quite see from where i am but um if i actually if i step right
1: out onto my front porch here i can get a, a, a look at it um although the the hang on a second the, the um sorry the the phone line doesn't quite reach out the door but from where i'm you're I stand, you're you're on, on a like, land you're on a landline
0: Yeah, the traffic's backed up actually right out right out of the national park. It's
1: uh, there are quite a few cars there. Are the, are those headlights or taillights? Can you tell? Well, sure. Yeah, they're taillights. Are they the taillights facing your direction? Well, yeah. Now you're looking if down. I'm, are you're you're out on Quail Springs Road? You. I'm not seeing any movement from where, where I'm sitting. Yeah. Are you you sure you can see Quail Springs Road from there? Because where you are, doesn't the hill block the view? Um, well,
0: a a little. A little bit, but, you know, sometimes if you really want me to get a good look, I can try try and climb up onto the roof.
1: I wonder if what you're looking at is the highway.
0: I don't think so. No, I I don't think so.
1: Now, does your house face the north? My porch, yeah, faces north. So to the to the north of you there, that that would be twenty nine Palms Highway. Well that's, that's true. This here is a 1949 Homestead Cabin. Just off Highway 62. Now the road here used to be about 20 yards out. But the highway has been widened through the village here. So now let's see. One, two, three, four lanes and a turn lane and shoulders and kind of a pretend bike lane. Be careful. So this is about 250 square feet. Has a shed roof, hand plastered walls, popcorn acoustic ceiling. Parquet wood floor. There's really nothing bad about it. At times it can be a bit loud during the daytime, mostly. trucks come by, the convoys from the Marine Base, uh, those much more chaotic convoys of RV America rental fleet. And now it's time for strange and unusual facts. Back in 1855, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis convinced the U.S. Senate to fund a camel expedition from Texas to the Mojave Desert. Both one-humped and two-humped camels were imported from the Middle East along with both Arab and Turkish camel drivers. The 70 camels successfully traveled the Great American Desert and easily crossed the Colorado River while numerous sheep and mules drowned. After reaching the Tehachapis in 1857, the camels were retired to live out their lives at various ranches in California and Arizona. Jefferson Davis had joined the Confederacy in war against the United States, and his camel project was no longer in fashion. Haji Ali, the best known of the camel drivers from the old Ottoman Empire, lived a long and happy life in the American West and died a half-century later, in 1902. He is buried in Quartzite, Arizona, beneath a pyramid memorial topped with a copper camel. He kept some of his sturdy animals to the end, and he once used a couple of camels to break up an all-German picnic in Los Angeles after the German immigrants refused to invite him to lunch. When you see the Jawas carry R2-D2 up the ridge to the enormous sand crawler tank, in 1977's original Star Wars movie, you were looking at a group of costumed fourth graders from Death Valley Elementary School, mostly the children of park rangers. Aldous Huxley, the British author of enduring fiction and non-fiction books, including Brave New World and The Doors of Perception, he moved from Los Angeles to a 40-acre property in the high desert in 1940. And he produced several interesting works there, including his mystical essay, The Desert, and his charming fable, The Crows of Pear Blossom still in print as a children's picture book some 70 years after its original publication. The plot of The Crows of Pear Blossom is this, a rattlesnake is eating the crow's eggs. The crows suffer this assault for some time until discovering a way to kill the snake by tricking the viper into eating stones rather than eggs. And then the crows tie both ends of the still-living snake to the tree branches so that the poor creature is slowly torn apart by the weight of the stones within him. While the crows have lost dozens of potential children... At least they can celebrate their brutal victory over the rattlesnake. Huxley had very poor eyesight. That might explain why he thought our enormous Mojave Desert ravens were the smaller corvid cousins more common to the western cities, the crows. You've heard the name Minerva Hoyt. In your explorations of this area. Her story is an interesting one. Minerva Hamilton Hoyt was a wealthy socialite living in Pasadena, but the death of her infant child and then her husband sent her into the desert wilderness seeking solace and inspiration. She found both and became a tireless explorer of and advocate for the southwestern deserts. Hoyt became no less than the first great desert conservationist, as crucial to the appreciation and protection of desert landscapes as John Muir was for the High Sierra. Her life after 1918 was one of dirt road adventure and big city campaigns. Hoyt traveled the arid lands and remote canyons only in the company of her African-American housekeeper. They camped together under open skies exploring the now famous places that Hoyt would use her money and social status to promote as natural parks. While most remembered today for her success in convincing her friend Harold Ix and President Franklin D. Roosevelt to create Joshua Tree National Monument, Hoyt also campaigned for two other vast desert parks that would become reality in her lifetime, Death Valley and Anza Borrego.
0: cultural effect, the theological effect of these phenomena really has influenced human thought and it has influenced human action and there's even uh, a sort of intervention within human warfare and conflict throughout history that is well documented the phenomenon is not sociable but at the same time meaning it interacts with you on its own terms But at the same time, it has influenced society to a degree that I don't think most people really uh, understand. You know, people do things in the the name of God that are atrocious, and they do things in the name of their religion that are beautiful, both, right? So the human vehicle, the interpretive human vehicle, it can be so flawed, because you can have an experience... But the moment you try to classify and, and, and organize that experience into a cohesive idea and then start acting from it, there's a lot of places that you can mess up. And that's what I've noticed, is that the phenomenon appears to be engaging humanity in a pattern of reinforcement. It is telling a story to us, but it is not always a cohesive story. So... The idea that it is engaging humanity throughout time with this physical pattern of reinforcement means it's trying to influence us somehow. But just what is it doing? That's the big question. Somebody has an encounter that is so far outside the scope of general believability. There is a ridicule factor that has been infused into our culture quite intentionally sometimes and usually the experiences are far more bizarre than people report because it's acceptable to some degree to report a ufo depending on your position in this world you're know, being a doctor or surgeon you might not want to they think you're not wrapped too tight and, but you can cut into people not good you can fly a plane not good so pilots won't often talk about it but they know about it they've seen it the other reason why that we get these narrow accounts is because you see what you're looking at, man. We know what we see. But some of us can't even express our love for, you know, our wives or our brothers or our friends. Emotions can be difficult because of the harm that has occurred within a human's life. So expressing or even defining what we're feeling emotionally can be difficult for people. And also, emotions are so subjective they see something in the sky that's the size of a bus and is square like a refrigerator and it's humming and sitting there, and they say, I must have hit my head. You know, because there's no way that that could exist. There's no way. So oftentimes people start a story to me like, I'm going to tell you something that couldn't have possibly happened. For me, it's more about the people because the, the experiences, it's hard to replicate, but the stories from the people, if I find them credible, I will try to amplify their voice because I think it's a very important topic this topic we're talking about so all my work can be found at extraordinarybeliefs.com
1: that was part two of our interview with Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell. he's the documentary film director at extraordinarybeliefs.com And now it's time to report on some recent temperatures in the desert southwest. Had a record on June 20th in Death Valley. 126.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Palm Springs was one degree shy of the all-time record, 122. Tucson hit 116 Again, one degree short of an all-time record. 119 degrees in Phoenix, the city's fourth highest temperature ever recorded. That's according to the Weather Underground. It was an all-time temperature record recorded in San Diego County on June 21st from Ocotillo Wells in the desert east of San Diego. 124 degrees. Welcome to sunny San Diego. There have been power outages across the Southwest. Wildfires. And of course, television weather reporters have gone out in the heat to cook eggs in different ways on their cars. And we know it gets hot, and some of us even like it when it gets this hot. But it's getting a little hotter than it used to be, and it's getting hotter earlier in the year than previously recorded. So get yourself some solar panels. Get yourself a swamp cooler. Save some money. Save the planet. Give a hoot. For as long as people have lived in the desert, they've been saying some terrible variation of, Is it hot enough for you? Well, now it is. Announcements. The program is supposed to begin at exactly 10 p.m. on this station, but that was not the case last week due to human and not technological error. That is why the program began at 10.30 p.m. last week, but we are assured that tonight and in the future, the program will begin reliably at or at least very near to 10 p.m. on Fridays. The former park ranger will return next week. You can listen to our broadcast as a podcast, Desert Oracle Radio on iTunes. You click the right button and you'll get all the episodes for free, which is useful for those desert people currently on the road or on the lam, wherever you are make it sound like the desert desert oracle radio is brought to you by desert oracle the pocket-sized quarterly field guide to the intriguing american desert subscribe for only 25 dollars, and you will receive four delightful issues learn about strange history and poisonous reptiles Gaze upon handsome illustrations and photographs. Be entranced by our very bright yellow cover. Desert Oracle is the name. Find it at dozens of fine retailers across the desert southwest. From Back of Beyond Books in Moab to the Shoshone Museum next to the Crowbar in Shoshone, California. You can purchase a subscription to the Desert Oracle at DesertOracle.com or send $25 by check or money order to Desert Oracle, Post Office Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California. Write to us if you need to at radio at desertoracle.com. Fridays at 10 o'clock on z one zero seven seven fm and Joshua Tree, all the time on iTunes, Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you for... Listening at midnight from the voice of the desert.